When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Good evening, everyone. We're following breaking news. The U.S. and British military have launched strikes against targets in Houthi-controlled Yemen, according to two U.S. officials. This comes after the Iranian-backed militant group has launched a series of attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea, which has stoked fears of a wider conflict in the region already reeling from the Israel-Hamas war. We have a lot to get to. This is obviously a huge development in the region. You're looking at a map right there. The challenge has been that the Houthi attacks have caused ships that would normally go through the Suez Canal to have to go around the Horn of Africa, meaning it takes a lot longer to get there. There have been some limited military strikes that have actually killed some Houthis that were involved in this blockade. The Houthis launched this blockade in protest to the killing of Palestinians in Gaza. So that is just the setup, kind of the background to what's going on. The Houthis are an Iranian-backed group. They were involved in a civil war in Yemen. We now do have a reporter we want to go to. Give me one moment. Okay, we're going to go to senior White House correspondent Gabe Gutierrez with more. Uh, Gabe, what do you know? Uh, Hi there, Joy. Well, as you may have mentioned, two U.S. officials confirmed to NBC News that these strikes are underway, targeting uh, Houthi rebels inside Yemen. Now, what we understand from those officials is that um, these strikes have targeted multiple locations with fighter jets and tomahawks fired from Navy ships. Now, this comes, Joy, this is a significant escalation because for the past several weeks, uh, national security officials here at the White House have been repeatedly warning the Houthis to essentially knock it off and to stop attacking commercial ships in the Red Sea. Now, today, the Iranian Navy sees an oil tanker off the coast of Oman really raising the stakes here. And Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was asked about these escalating tensions earlier in the day. He said that he did not view it as an escalation, at least not yet. But there are, quote, danger points. However, this breaking news that these airstrikes are underway does seem to really ramp up the stakes. And this is something that the U.S. U.S. and the U.K. have been considering for for some time. And they had already responded, Joy, uh, by shooting down missiles and drones fired by the Houthis. They had already uh, also recently sank some Houthi boats that had fired on commercial ships. But this is the first time that the U.S. airstrikes are uh, targeting the Houthis inside of Yemen, these land-based targets. Again, we don't have reports. It's too early to know of any injuries or exactly how many targets um, were, were hit. And uh, officially from the White House, no official word yet, Joy. Uh, but uh, what we know is from those two U.S. officials is that these airstrikes are already underway, Joy. Uh, and let me ask you this question, Gabe, because the, the question of whether or not there will be an escalation, I mean, one would think that firing missiles into Yemeni territory is in and of itself an escalation. Are there any plans for a press conference for President Biden to speak to what is going on? Because I think the American people will want to know how limited uh, of a military engagement we're potentially looking at or whether it could become broader. Well, Joy, at this point, we have no indication that uh, President Biden is expected uh, to speak tonight. Again, we don't even have official confirmation from officials with the National Security Council that these airstrikes are underway. So at this point, uh, there is a uh, 
We have no indication that the president is set to speak. But I can tell you, Joy, this is something that had come up over and over again over the last several days in these White House briefings and really concerns about what the uh, Houthi attacks on ships in the Red Sea could mean for everyday Americans if these ships were uh, have been diverted. Uh, this obviously has huge economic impacts around the world. And National Security Spokesman John Kirby, he reiterated that warning today, and he said that there would be consequences. However, when he was pressed by reporters on what those consequences could be. He refused to say, saying he didn't want to telegraph any punches. But right now, tonight, we know that uh, apparently the U.S. Uh, was considering these strikes inside Yemen for the first time, and they've carried them out, Joy. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, jumping on here uh, very, very quickly. And I know you are very busy making phone calls and trying to figure things out. Has there been, to your knowledge, and I know you have been working on what the White House has been saying, has there been any uh, sort of word from the region? Uh, are we hearing from any sort of regional leaders about these strikes by the U.S. and the U.K.? At this point, it's too early, uh, Joy. These uh, strikes, when we understand it, happened just uh, just within a short time ago. Uh, so we are monitoring any reactions from uh, from uh, across the region. But Joy, this has huge implications. I mean, for the last several months, really since the start of the Israel-Hamas war, we've been hearing over and over again that the, what the U.S. wanted to try and prevent is a wider war here in the Middle East. We have no uh, response yet uh, that we know from Iran, for example. But the U.S. has said that Iran has aided and abetted the Houthis and has really been giving that warning over and over again uh, to expect consequences for these attacks. They've even gotten other countries from across the region to kind of band together and to try and minimize these attacks on ships in the Red Sea. But as of now, again, this is very early. It'll be very interesting to see what how Iran responds to this. And again, we are waiting for any type of response from National Security Council officials here at the White House. Track. NBC's Gabe Gutierrez, uh, if you do hear of anything within the 7 o'clock hour that you think we need to know, please wave your arms, get on a call, and please let us know so that we can bring you back on. Gabe, thank you so much. Much appreciated. You, you bet. All right, we're going to continue following this major development. But meanwhile, there is also news back in the United States involving the leading candidate on the Republican side for president, one Donald J. Trump. And this uh, news is a lesson, in fact. For all of you who would like to be attorneys, for you to be, want to be lawyers, there is no legal value in letting your client take part in your closing arguments. Don't do it. It will not work out in your favor. Now, if you don't agree, just look to the dramatic scenes out of a New York City courtroom today where closing arguments were made in Donald Trump's civil fraud trial. Following Judge Arthur and Goron's decision yesterday not to allow Trump to speak, given that he would not follow the rules imposed on everyone else. Trump's lawyers asked again at the end of their closing arguments to allow Trump just a few minutes to speak. Surprisingly, the judge agreed. Unsurprisingly, Trump very quickly went down the path that the judge told him not to go. Trump went on the attack against New York Attorney General Letitia James, saying she hates Trump and is just conducting a political witch hunt. He claimed the case is election interference and that she should be paying him for damages. Trump also went on to attack the judge, claiming that he had his own agenda. And just remember, there's no jury in this trial. It's the judge who's going to be ruling in this case, which he said today that he is trying to do before the end of the month. It's a ruling that has the potential to cause Trump both great financial and reputational harm. The judge has already ruled that Trump and his co-defendants, including his eldest sons, are liable for fraud, for inflating the value of their various properties. What is yet to be determined by Judge and Goron is what financial penalties Trump will have to face. 
Letitia James came into the case asking for $250 million in penalties, but has since upped that to $370 million. She's also asked for a lifetime ban for Trump from the real estate industry in New York. At the end of the day, the point is simple. No matter how powerful you are, no matter how rich you are, that no one is above the law and that the law applies to all of us equally and fairly. Perhaps this is why the case has appeared to have gotten under Trump's orange-tinted skin more than any other, with Trump repeatedly lashing out in public and on social media against the state attorney general, the judge, and even the judge's clerk, which resulted in a gag order against him. And Trump's rhetoric has had real-world consequences. Just this morning, hours before the start of the closing arguments, Judge Ngoron faced a bomb threat at his home. Joining me now is MSNBC reporter Adam Reese, who was in the courtroom today, and Charles Coleman Jr., former Brooklyn prosecutor and MSNBC legal analyst. Gentlemen, thank you for being here and for sitting through our breaking news. You got here on an exciting night. So we're going to make this turn to talk about uh, what happened in court today. You were there, Adam. Tell us what went on. Well, we started out with the defense making their argument. Again, same argument that we've heard over the past 44 days. No fraud, no victims. Michael Cohen, the prosecution's lead uh, lead witness, is a convicted liar. We should actually be praising Mr. Trump. He should get a medal. Uh, everything that Mr. Trump did was right. Uh, and then they went on and on and on. Mr. Trump had the opportunity. He spoke. It was the same thing. He said, I am innocent. I, I should be uh, compensated. I am the victim of fraud here. The prosecution, they had their chance to speak. They said more of the same, that essentially, uh, you know, Donald Trump loves to talk about how rich he is, that banks love how rich he is, that they were actually begging him to let them loan him money, that they were rolling out the red carpet. Um, but there was intent to fraud, to defraud. The evidence is there. And if you don't see it, your head's buried in the sand. And you know, the thing is, I, look, I'm not a lawyer, but even I know if you represent yourself, you have a fool for a client. Have you ever, as a prosecutor, seen a defendant in a case, particularly when there's no jury? There's no jury to convince you. There's nobody. It's the judge that gets to decide. Have you ever heard of a defendant in a case like this deciding to give part of the closing argument? No, Joy, and this is as bizarre as it is consistent with everything that we continue to see out of Trump world here on Earth One, where everyone continues to operate on Earth Two in that sort of camp. Even if you had a client who wanted to testify and you thought that that was a bad idea and you still allowed that client to exercise their right to testify, during a closing argument, you are absolutely not allowing your client to leave that judge or that jury with the final impression of what it is that your case represents, particularly if you know or have any inkling that that client is going to get on the stand and get in front of the, and get in the well and gesticulate and berate the court officers and berate right. The judge and berate the entire justice system that is responsible for conducting this hearing that you are an officiant of as a lawyer, you're never going to do that. So, yes, this is really absurd. It's really bizarre, but it's also very consistent. And the thing is, it, it, there's a possibility, again, that, that, you know, coming at this from a non lawyer's point of view, I could foresee Donald Trump saying, I'm going to appeal if he is gets That's a five hundred million dollar, uh, you know, judgment against him and say they didn't let me speak. Well, mm -hmm. he's killed that now because they did let him speak. Right. So in a way, did he undermine one of the few things he might have had on appeal? 
Well, I don't necessarily know it was that. I think it was more so that the judge made a conscious decision to take away, as you already talked about, an argument that he could have had. It, he didn't undermine him because he has a history, as you've seen over and over again, in various jurisdictions. I'm going to put pressure on the refs because if they make a bad call from the bench, I now have an issue that I can move on appeal and try to collect and try to delay, 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 because that's ultimately what I want to do. Judge Ngoran said, I'm not going to give you that option here. I'm going to allow you your time to speak right. and you're going to walk into a hole and I'm going to give you enough rope and you're going to hang yourself. What was the, how did the judge's sort of demeanor sort of change as he was hearing these attacks, including on himself? Well, you know, the judge has always been amenable um, originally to let him speak. And there was this intense um, wild exchange of emails earlier this week. The judge was going to let him speak. It was a back and forth. He gave him three chances. He finally said, now or never, you need to decide, are you going to agree to these restrictions that I'm putting in place? And when Mr. Trump started to speak, by the way, Judge Engeron was laying out the restrictions and Mr. Trump did not let him even finish. He just launched into his diatribe. It got to the point where the judge said, Mr. Kais, you need to control your client. It was the end of that. And they were out of the room. Chris Kais, by, by the way, for the, those of you who don't remember all of the playing cards here, he's the guy who got the three million or two million up front to represent Donald Trump. Uh, did, did, did you get the sense and could you tell if the idea for him to speak was his idea or the lawyers? Because I cannot imagine it was Chris Kais's idea. Right. He, all, all along, it's it's him making the calls. And in those emails that I just referred to, yeah. you could see in the writing there was almost a cut and paste. This was not. Chris Kai speaking. Yeah. This was Donald Trump speaking, um, referring to this prosecution. It's a political witch hunt. They're performing for him. How high do you think this uh, could end up going? I mean, the, the, you know, Letitia James has now gone up to 370. Could it go higher? I don't necessarily know if it goes higher, but I do think it's going to go higher than where we initially started. I think that Donald Trump's defense team was very smart to invoke language around corporate death penalty because what that's intended to do is to get the judge to back off just a little bit because he's worried about that judgment being appealed for being too draconian or too severe. Now, that being said, I do think that we could see in upwards of 300 million, which would be very, very bad for the Trump organization. Sure. But I don't know that we're going to get to 270. I think we will be higher than where Letitia James started, but not as high as she is now. But let's put up the, the, the list of other things <laughs> that are coming up, like Donald Trump still has um, this case. You still have the uh, appeals court in the D.C. the D.C. appeals court case, right? That he has to deal with of whether or not he has absolute immunity. You've got this uh, question of whether. I mean, I can't even remember all of it. He's got also you've got Miami, Miami. You've got hush money. You've got D.C. Uh, Eugene Carroll, Atlanta. And let's not forget Alvin Bragg, who started all of this That's with the first too. criminal yep. indictment yeah. right here in Manhattan. He's oftentimes overlooked. This is a guy who has a very full dance card. And Joy, one of the things I wanted to point out is we've gone to a place where he has now amalgamated himself as a defendant and a campaign and a candidate into one thing. These are campaign stops right. as much as they are court appearances. Yeah. And the other piece of it is that this is a, a this is a settled matter. I just want to put up here. To remind folks again, this is not the most sort of serious case in terms of criminality. I mean, obviously, stealing documents is worse. Oh, I think we might be out of time. I think we're out of time. Uh, all right. Well, never mind. I'm not going to put up the, the lies he told about his buildings. I'm actually just going to say goodbye to my guests. Adam Reese and Charles Coleman Jr. It's been a wild night, y'all. Thank you. We're continuing to follow tonight's breaking news. The U.S. and U.K. strike Houthi rebels uh, in the Red Sea. Uh, I'm sorry, in Yemen. And coming up on the readout, Haley and DeSantis continue their sad battle for second place behind Trump, who is too busy bragging about destroying a woman's right to make her own reproductive decisions to even notice. The readout continues after this.
Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. We are continuing to follow tonight's dramatic development in the Middle East. The United States and Britain have launched military strikes against multiple Houthi targets in Yemen using fighter jets and tomahawks fired from Navy ships. This comes after the Iranian-backed militant group has launched a series of attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea. Let's bring in NBC News Pentagon correspondent Courtney Kuby. Courtney, what uh, is the latest news that you've got? So literally, Joy, these strikes just were carried out in the last hour. Uh, we know there were a number of targets. We're still working on that exact number to see if they actually, the U.S. and the British military actually struck all of the targets that they had been considering earlier. Uh, but as you said, they used a combination of fighter jets launched off of U.S. military, pla- uh, U.S. Navy platform in the U.S. case, the U.S.S. Eisenhower carrier, uh, which is there in the region. And then they also fired Tomahawk missiles, also from U.S. Navy ships. Now, we're still waiting to hear exactly what they struck, but U.S. officials say they hit inside the Houthi-controlled area in Yemen, and the sorts of targets that they were going after included things like structures, where they would be able to hit locations that could have an impact to stop some of these continued Houthi attacks against the shipping lanes in the Red Sea. As you mentioned, the, the Houthis have been targeting commercial and potentially military ships in the Southern Red Sea since about November 19th. It all started with a brazen attack that day where at least 10 armed militants rappelled down from helicopters and took over a cargo ship. Since then, they have fired upwards of 80 drones, ballistic missiles, anti-ship cruise missiles at ships in that region, many of them being shot down or knocked down by the U.S. military, but several actually have struck several of those ships. And the, the results here, Joy, is major commercial shipping companies throughout the world have started moving and rerouting away from that area. It's adding cost. It's adding time. Ultimately, it could add more cost to consumers who buy some of the goods that will be moving through that area. Again, tonight, the U.S. and the um, the British military striking back. The effort is to deter these continued attacks by the Houthi rebels in Yemen. And do Joy. we have more specificity, Courtney, on what kinds of targets were being struck? We're still working on that. I can tell you literally some of the aircraft have just landed in the last in literally in the last minutes from conducting these strikes. So we should know more this evening. Um, but we should think about hardened structures that they would go after. And the goal here, again, is to try to degrade the Houthis ability to carry out more of these strikes. So think about places where they might uh, store or build some of these one way drones, some of the cruise missiles and the ballistic missiles that they've sh- they've gone after. Those are also the sorts of things that the U.S. in the past 
past when they've taken uh, strikes against the Houthis in Yemen. Those are the sorts of things they've gone after, Joy. Courtney Kuby, thank you very much. Much appreciated. And joining me now is retired Admiral James DeRidis, former NATO Supreme Allied Commander. Uh, Admiral, it's always good to talk with you. Uh, I think for a lot of people uh, who may be having uh, flashbacks uh, to the Iraq war era, including myself, uh, please explain what a limited strike with this kind of ammunition, what kind of damage might it do? uh, You know, what are we looking at here in terms of um, how damaging these strikes might be? Yeah. Can we just back up for one second and say why we're doing this? Because it makes enormous sense on the part of the Biden administration. Uh, Over a period, as Courtney just told us, of about three months, we've had missiles launched at our ships and commercial shipping. We've had drone attacks. We've had small boat attacks. We have warned these Houthi rebels, Houthi pirates again and again and again, and they have simply not responded. And Joy, we can't just sit back and be defensive here and allow these Iranian-backed rebels to simply break 15% of the global shipping chain. That'll increase costs for all of us in every single way. It shatters the confidence and the consensus in global shipping. So That's what's happening here. So the administration correctly has decided to launch a series of strikes. Three important things to note. Number one, it's U.S. plus coalition partners. Certainly the United Kingdom, I suspect others have been involved at some level in this because this is a global problem, not just a U.S. versus Iran problem. So coalition strikes. Number two, These strikes are going to go exactly as Courtney said against the physical means by which these Houthi rebels have trained, equipped and organizes their forces. That means go after their missile sites, go after their ammunition storage, go after their fuel storage, go after their overall capability. And here's good news that can be done without huge loss of life makes a lot of sense. And third and finally, Joy. Um, these strikes are a signal not just to Houthi rebels in Yemen. It's a signal to Tehran. And let's hope Tehran is listening because we really don't want this to expand beyond the situation we're facing right now. That, that is the, what I want to talk with you more about is the relationship between the Houthis and Iran. So please don't go anywhere, Admiral Savridis. Just stay with, right there because I do want to bring in very quickly NBC News senior White House correspondent Gabe Gutierrez. Uh, to, as, as he promised he would do, he is waving his hands because he does have some updated information, and that would be in the form of a statement from the White House. Uh, please uh, take over, uh, Dave. What, uh, Hi there, Joy. Uh, Gabe, yes, that's Dave. That statement came just a few seconds ago, and I'm going to read from it as um, we look at it for the first time. President Biden saying that today at my discretion, U.S. military forces together with the United Kingdom and with support from Australia, Bahrain, Canada and the Netherlands successfully conducted strikes against a number of targets in Yemen used by Houthi rebels. He goes on to say that these strikes are in direct response to unprecedented Houthi attacks against international maritime vessels in the Red Sea, including the use of anti-ship ballistic missiles for the first time in history. The president says that these attacks have endangered U.S. personnel, civilian mariners, and our partners in jeopardized trade. And he also goes on to say 
that the response of the international community to these reckless attacks has been united and resolute. The uh, statement is longer, Joy. We're, mm-hmm. we're still going through it. But again, this uh, is significant, Joy, because over the last several weeks, the U.S. has really talked about that international coalition uh, to stop the Houthi attacks in the Red Sea. And it appears this strike um, was backed not just by the U.S. and the U.K., but also Bahrain, Canada, and the Netherlands, part of that international coalition to crack down on these Houthi rebels. But again, we're getting that reaction from the president. And I should point out, Joy, we are also hearing from the Houthi media authority. If I can uh, find this uh, statement, um, here we go. There's a, a Houthi media authority just put out a statement saying, quote, a brutal aggression against our country for which the Americans will pay absolutely and without hesitation. So certainly some indication that this war, that this uh, conflict could escalate. But again, we're hearing from the White House for the first time mm-hmm. confirming that these airstrikes were undertaken inside Yemen. Gabe Gutierrez, thank you very much. Uh, the, the, the offer still stands. Please come back if you get any additional information and updates. Thank you. Much appreciated. To come back to Admiral Stavridis, Australia, Bahrain, Netherlands, and Canada. Um, the significance of that being the group of people, uh, the group of countries that have joined with the U.S. Yeah, it's only the beginning. There are at least a dozen nations in total who have signed on to this operation. It's called Operation prosperity guardian, meaning we're going to keep these shipping lanes open. This is very pragmatic. This is not some ideological campaign against Houthis. This is about keeping these shipping lanes open and not allowing these forces to simply strike at our warships and above all, our commercial shipping. And number two, as you just heard, it's about the coalition. Uh, Gabe correctly listed five or six countries. There are more who are joining this coalition. I think you're going to see more of this. And frankly, it's warranted. We have warned the Houthis. We've been defensive for months. It's about time we took this campaign ashore. Final thought, we faced something similar, Joy, about 10 years ago. You may kind of recall Somali pirates mm-hmm. off the coast of East Africa, the yeah. movie Captain Phillips. Yes. This is a much more sophisticated and dangerous version of that. It required 10 years ago that we go ashore. This is that step. And I'm very happy to see the administration take this point. No one wants violence. No one wants war. Yeah. But this is the right response to what we have been observing. I know you said final thought, but I want to I want to keep you for just one more question because sure. I want to take advantage of your knowledge of the region just to explain, to give context for those of uh, who are watching to understand who the Houthis are. What sure. is their relationship to Iran? And also, Please explain a little bit of the context of how this is related to the October 7 attack in Israel and Israel's response in Gaza, because my understanding of it is the Houthis, they were in a civil war inside of Yemen. I believe there's a ceasefire temporarily in that civil war inside Yemen between the Houthis uh, and governmental forces. But the Houthis began this in response to Israel's response to the Hamas attack. No. And so so what is the relation there and what is Iran's relationship to them? Yeah, Joy, you've described it perfectly. What is going on in Yemen is a civil war that has gone on for years with Iran backing one set of protagonists and uh, the uh, 
Arab nations, Saudi Arabia, UAE backing the other, and you're showing Yemen, it's down there at that corner. What people ought to recognize is where that corner sits in terms of shipping. Again, 15% of the world's shipping passes right by Yemen. And so there's been this ongoing civil war. You're correct. There had been a ceasefire. And as a result of the October 7th attack and the Israeli counterattack, Iran has encouraged these Houthis to go after shipping. And not to confuse people, but it's Hamas, Hezbollah, and Houthis. What do they have in common other than they all begin with an H? (laughs) They all are part of the Iranian proxies in the region. So really what you're seeing is part of that larger conflict between Israel and Iran playing out and thus dangerous times. And we all ought to worry about this expanding. Again, the administration has moved very judiciously, very carefully here, but made the right move to try and shut this down. I always appreciate the opportunity to speak with you, retired Admiral James Davides. You are so knowledgeable and you helped us to learn more and become uh, more knowledgeable about this region. So thank you. Thank you for your time tonight. Much appreciated. All right, we'll be right back. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. If you listen really carefully, what you'll hear in the distance is the pathetic silence that indicates the complete capitulation of the entire Republican establishment to Donald Trump. From the network that paid out $787 million for peddling his election lies to the people pretending to run for president against him. If you were fortunate enough to miss Trump's town hall with Iowa voters last night, fear not, you didn't miss much other than the decaf version of the all but certain Republican presidential nominee who got an opportunity to sound almost normal with an assist from the friendly hosts at Fox. Although Trump did get plenty of chances to prove that he's exactly as dangerous as he seems, as he did some low energy autocratting, sidestepping a question about political violence by claiming he'd be too busy for retribution against his enemies, but that it wouldn't be too bad if he did. And he tried to explain away his pledge to be a dictator on day one by blaming the media. And the press picks it up. So I said, I'm going to be a dictator for one day. They cut it. They go, I'm going to be a dictator. But they cut the rest of the sentence. No, no, I am not going to be a dictator. Or he could have just let Sean Hannity bail him out the first time, since now it seems like he really means it. 
the version of Trump seemingly designed by Lachlan Murdoch to be palatable enough to put on late on live TV, did drop the veil long enough to remind people of color and women exactly who he is. He vowed to create the largest deportation effort in history if he's elected president again. And he bragged about the work of his right wing Supreme Court. For 54 years, they were trying to get Roe v. Wade terminated, and I did it, and I'm proud to have done it. We did it, and we did something that was a miracle. Trump followed that line about the miracle with a lie about killing babies after birth, which is not a real thing ever. That also got no pushback from the Fox anchors, of course. Meanwhile, the two Republicans trying to remain relevant in the race spent the night going after not the arsonist atop the Republican field, no, no, but rather at each other which our producers have helpfully summarized for you as follows. We don't need another mealy mouth politician who just tells you what she thinks you want to hear. But every time he lies, Drake University, don't turn this into a drinking game because you will be overserved by the end of the night. Uh, she's got this problem with ballistic podiatry, uh, shooting herself in the foot every other day. He can call me whatever name and be demeaning as much as he wants. It doesn't change the fact that Ron's lying because Ron's losing. <laughs> Meanwhile, the rest of the MAGA party has long since moved on, with his MAGA cronies throwing everything at the wall to soothe some fragile little ego by trying, with no evidence, mind you, to make President Biden even Stephen with Trump on impeachment. On Wednesday, two House committees passed resolutions recommending contempt of Congress charges against the president's son, Hunter Biden. Even though Hunter Biden was very much present for one of those hearings yesterday, where Democrats called out Republicans for their lies. The witness accepted the chairman's invitation. It just so happens the witness is here. Let's take a vote. Who wants to hear from Hunter right now, today? Anyone? Come on. Who wants to hear from Hunter? Motion's out of order. No one. For some reason, it makes sense to hold Hunter Biden in contempt, who has tried to comply. And let me tell you why nobody wants to talk to y'all behind closed doors, because y'all lie. That's just the bottom line. Joining me now is Maria Teresa Kumar, president of Bodo Latino and an MSNBC contributor and MSNBC political analyst David Jolly, who served in Congress as a Republican before leaving the party. And I still cannot figure out why, why he's no longer associated with the party. <sighs> let me, let, I don't even know where to begin, but I will start with you, MTK. Um, how do you hold someone in contempt for violating a subpoena when they're literally sitting right there? Well, I think they were surprised and they said, wait a second, he's still there, but I have my talking points. They can't work off the cuff, which is clear. And so they weren't actually able to adapt in the in the manner that they needed to. But I think this brings up to a larger issue is that they are trying desperately to pin something, anything on the president, even if the even if it's his son. And by doing so, it's because they recognize that Trump is such a liability, especially when we saw what happened today in the court, where basically Tisha James is saying not only make sure that he has to pay a three hundred and seventy billion dollar fine, but at the same three, I'm sorry, $370 million fine, but at the same time, make sure that he can no longer conduct business as a Trump affiliate in his offices ever again in New York City. And that's huge. And the Republican Congress, they understand that. And that's why this whole thing is a complete ruse against Hunter Biden. It's embarrassing, David, because, you, you know, first of all, they're saying this guy's in contempt of Congress because he wouldn't come and go before a behind closed doors meeting with us 
because he wants to testify in public, which you'd think they'd want if they had anything on the president. That's number one. And number two, as Eric Swalwell pointed out, they've got members who refused subpoenas. You know, what, 600 some odd days later, Jim Jordan is still in defiance of a congressional subpoena. How can you say we want our subpoenas to be, uh, you know, you, we want you to comply with our subpoenas when we ourselves don't comply with subpoenas? Because it's re- it's the Republicans. Hypocrisy <laughs> is their currency. Um, so, look, I, I think what we're seeing in the Hunter Biden, uh, you know, strategy, if you will, is he is clearly subscribing to the notion that if you can't win the process, win the story. And so he's not going to win the process. Republicans have the vote, but he can win the story, which is exactly what we're talking about. This is someone who's trying to comply. I think we're also seeing a legal strategy. You know, one of the things that that Abby Lowell said is they sent five different letters to the committee saying, we will do it this way or how about this way? And they got no response. Congress is going to hold Hunter Biden in contempt and make a criminal referral to the Department of Justice. DOJ doesn't really want to take criminal referrals for contempt of Congress, but they especially don't want to take this one where we have now publicly seen Hunter Biden try to comply. This is a legal defense, but it also is a a political and public defense saying, I might lose the process, but I'm going to win this story. Right. And I mean, Marie Jessica Kumar, they're already saying that they're going to send this referral to uh, the Justice Department. And if uh, Merrick Garland doesn't prosecute Hunter Biden for contempt of Congress, they're going to impeach him. They're going to impeach Mayorkas over the border. They're going to impeach Joe Biden. They've got a long list of impeachments. Democrats have described it as like the Oprah Winfrey strategy. You get an impeachment and you get an impeachment and you get an impeachment. They're going to impeach everybody. And this is what they're going to take to their voters and say, this is why you should reelect us. I mean, I, I personally don't get it, but is there some base out there that says this is what they want? Not, I don't know, roads, bridges, something. Right. Well, and I think, I mean, but Joy, this is the, this is a challenge. We keep trying to say that the Republicans are actually, they are for something, that the purpose of government is to actually fix it. But for many of them, they want to drown government. They want to turn the American people off. They want to make it feel like it's icky and that you, that government cannot do anything. So they are actually following a strategy. And while it will turn some of those folks on of their base, it'll turn a vast majority of Americans off. And so we have to be very clear that it is a strategy because you are absolutely right. There's so many issues that are facing us right now as a country that we should be tackling. And instead of doing that, they're obfuscating and they're dragging their feet because they don't want to do the tough things. And that's policy and engage in policy changing for betterment of the American people. Yeah. And David Jolly, can we just spare a, a thought for Chris Christie here, who, you know, give him credit. Look, you know, Lawrence O'Donnell, he, he had us giggling last night saying that he this is the one time he actually had respect for Chris Christie. But I have to say, I do respect what he's tried to do. He is a lonely voice that speaks very plainly in plain spoken language about what Trump is, because he knows the man. He said he's known him for 25 years. He knows that he's a crook. He knows he doesn't care about his base at all. What do you think he winds up doing? Because he has said that he's going to do everything he can to prevent Trump from being elected president again. What can he do? Who's his audience? Yeah, I think he possibly ends up speaking at the DNC, endorsing Joe Biden and hitting the campaign trail for him. That certainly reflect his words. Now, I think we have to look at Chris Christie's trajectory over the last decade. I mean, he 
He endorsed Donald Trump initially uh, back in the first race. He led his transition team. He thought he might be vice president. When that didn't work out, things got a little sour. But the one thing you've got to give him credit for is he has been perfectly consistent this race. He was running to be a foil to Donald Trump and to say that Donald Trump is a danger to the country. Well, if Donald Trump is a danger to the country and he is the Republican nominee, then Chris Christie better support Joe Biden publicly or he will be back having his credentials question. I hope he joins the coalition that supports the reelection of the president. We will see. Uh, And then the other issue, uh, MTK, well, the two issues, Republicans want one and don't want the other. The one they want is immigration. They are doing brown scare again. So far, this does not seem to have cost them as many Latino votes as one might think, because there is somewhat of a base inside of, you know, the, the Latino base that's for Republicans and Trump. And then there's the abortion one, which they don't want any piece of. Donald Trump tried to kind of walk a line with it and sound reasonable about it. But this is a losing issue for them. Women are going to die. Women are already dying. It's a problem. How do those two issues you think play into this election year? So I think, you know, one of the things that we keep talking about in the media is that there is a that Latinos are shifting Republican and the data joy just doesn't doesn't add up quite, uh, quite frankly. During the midterm elections, what we saw from Pew was that there was a dip in Latino turnout Mm. and the people that turned out were were Republican because they did get reached out to. So this is an opportunity for the Democrats to say, if you want to win, you're going to make sure that Latinos that have supported you historically continue to support you at record level. And that means talking to them and investing in them. And to your point, the immigration that's happening at the border, that's not an immigration issue. That's a crisis. And Latino communities all around the country, they want safe borders as well. But you know what they also want? They want to make sure that their loved ones that were essential workers that made sure that we were thriving mm-hmm. during the during COVID, that their families all of a sudden can come out of the shadows if they were undocumented and actually get relief. That's a domestic policy issue. And the Republicans don't want to touch that because they know that even moderate independent Republicans mm-hmm. believe that someone who's been paying taxes here for 20, 30 years, they too deserve a shot at the American dream in a fair, square way. Yeah, I also think that that whole abortion issue is absolutely a loser. And he knows that's why Trump knows that. And the yeah. Republicans are trying to backpedal, but that's too late. Uh, absolutely. And a national abortion ban. I don't know how they think that's the answer. That doesn't even make sense. Uh, <laughs> that's not going to fly. Uh, Maria Chisa Kumar, David Jolly, thank you both very much. Coming up, the UN's highest court begins hearing arguments accusing Israel of committing genocide in Gaza. Key takeaways from the first day of this landmark case when the readout continues. Today, as U.S. media attention has been largely focused on Donald Trump or Hunter Biden, around the world, a major hearing with massive implications, which began at the International Court of Justice at The Hague, is a much bigger story. As lawyers for the Republic of South Africa laid out their case that Israel's bombardment of Gaza amounts to genocide. For the past 96 days, Israel has subjected Gaza to what has been described as one of the heaviest conventional bombing campaigns in the history of modern warfare. They are also at immediate risk of death by starvation, dehydration, and disease as a result of the ongoing siege by Israel, the destruction of Palestinian towns, the insufficient aid being allowed through to the Palestinian population, and the impossibility of distributing this limited aid while bombs fall. 
During the three-hour hearing, South Africa argued that Israel has not only committed genocidal acts, but also acted with genocidal intent, using public statements by members of the Israeli government to make their case. Members of the Knesset have repeatedly called for Gaza to be wiped out, flattened, erased, and crushed on all its inhabitants. They have deplored anyone feeling sorry for the uninvolved Gazans, asserting repeatedly that there are no uninvolved, that there are no innocents in Gaza, that the killers of the women and children should not be separated from the citizens of Gaza, and that the children of Gaza have brought this upon themselves, and that there should be one sentence for everyone there, death. South Africa also asked the ICJ to impose a preliminary order to stop the violence in Gaza while the case plays out, which could take years. Israel, which has vehemently denied all of these allegations, will present its defense tomorrow. Joining me now is Tarana Hassan, executive director of Human Rights Watch. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Ms. Hassan. Um, I did watch uh, these hearings today, and it was dramatic, particularly the second gentleman that you saw when he began quoting uh, ministers in the Israeli government, including the prime minister. How much could those words wind up playing or how could those words wind out wind up playing out in these hearings? Well, I mean, South Africa it has made the charge uh, in front of the United Nations highest court that Israel's military operations have resulted in violations of the Convention of Genocide. But also it's saying that these statements that you heard being read out by Israeli, Israeli political and military officials amount to evidence of a clear intent to destroy Palestinians in Gaza as a group, in part or in whole. And that is what uh, the case for genocide turns on. And so what South Africa is saying is that there is a clear reference from the acts of the Israeli military on the ground um, and those genocidal statements and directives um, are actually being implemented in the military operations on the ground. And they're also arguing that Israel is not doing enough to prevent genocide, which they believe is an obligation uh, under uh, the Genocide Convention. And the, the, the death toll right now is 23,469 estimated uh, dead uh, since the October 7 uh, attacks, um, 56,604 wounded, more than 7,700 missing under rubble. Um, and that's according to Gaza's uh, media offices. Let's talk about the coalitions at play here. Um, supporting South Africa, uh, the countries that include Saudi Arabia, the 56 members of the Islamic co uh, Cooperation, including Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Bolivia and Venezuela, supporting Israel, the U.S., Germany and Austria. It seems significant that Saudi Arabia is on that list. They were looking for a kind of normalization with Israel not that long ago. What are the significances of these coalitions? Well, I think actually if we want to talk about the significance of the coalitions in relation to this case, we should look at the parties of the Genocide Convention who have welcomed South Africa's application. Um, and they include Bangladesh, Bolivia, Jordan, Malaysia, the Maldives, Pakistan, um, Turkey, Venezuela. And you're right, the um, the OIC also issued a statement. But also France's UN ambassador in New York said that France is a strong supporter of the International Court of Justice and would back the court's decisions. And I think the important thing to take away from this is that, you know, this is an independent court um, and it would 
will hear this very important case based on its merits. And because, as we said in the beginning, that um, the threshold to prove intent and the crime of genocide is quite difficult to prove. This is exactly the reason why the International Court of Justice case is so important. Um, you know, we know, as you were talking about, the death count um, is is terribly high. Um, we know that thousands of civilians have been killed and amongst those thousands of children. So the situation on the ground um, is so grave that it does merit the world court scrutiny. Yeah, this is the deadliest conflict uh, in modern history, uh, more dead than in even places like Aleppo. Um, what is the significance of it being South Africa? Because there is a long history uh, of the, the former government during apartheid and the Israeli government back in those days. But what is the significance of it being South Africa? And for instance, it's not an Arab country that's bringing this case. Well, I think it's um, you know it's important and it's it's a positive development that we see a country like South Africa being willing to take this matter up at the International Court of Justice. It's not the first time we have seen principled action from African states on um, atrocity crimes uh, and crimes of, of such scale. Actually, it was a few years ago that we saw um, Gambia, the small landlocked country of West Africa bring forward a case um, of genocide uh, in on, in Myanmar in relation to the persecution um, and attacks on the Rohingya population. So I think that there there is precedent uh, for countries uh, with strong judicial and constitutional um, foundations to be able to elevate you know, matters of international concern um, to international courts. And so I think that it's an important development that this comes. And I think because it's South Africa, it isn't an Arab country indeed. And it just shows you that this sort of, um, when we are dealing with atrocity crimes, when we are yeah. dealing with crimes serious uh, as genocide, yeah. that it concerns all countries. Indeed. Uh, Tarana Hassan, thank you very much. Much appreciated. And that is tonight's readout. Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download.